Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the 19th episode of JavaScript Jabber. Today on our show, we have with us the illustrious, magnificent, glamblorious Kyle Simpson. That was an amazing intro. I've never been described that way. That's because I didn't use real words, but they sound <laughs> awesome as almost. We also have with us Amy Knight, who's going to be popping on and off. Hey, hey, from Nashville and the broken water heater. <laughs> and Dan Shapir. Hey, from Tel Aviv, where we have awesome weather. You do need to be jealous. It's like 80 degrees and it's just wonderful. I'm your host, AJ O'Neill, and I'm Yo 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 coming at you so live right now. Let's get into it. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. Oh, I didn't mean that it would transpire before our very eyes. I mean, maybe we don't even see the transpiration output at all. We just stick with the higher level of abstraction, kind of like some of those GPT-3 demos that uh, were going online where it, it kind of transformed the, the programmer to an extent into like product where if you express sufficiently accurately your intent, then it, the tool is able to implement your intent and you don't necessarily need to even see whatever code it, it uses to implement your intent. It kind of goes to that point of you saying at the beginning that you don't think that uh, AI will replace or machine learning will replace developers because at the end of the day, developers write code for other humans. It just makes it possible for us to communicate to other humans in a way that doesn't force those other humans to learn JavaScript, something like that. So again, I think there's, there's an interesting concept to be explored here. I'm separating it out from what I think tools like Kadota and Tab9 should do. So if we imagine some kind of tool that can take this XYZ higher abstracted language that you're envisioning and turn that into something that can run somewhere, like turn it into JavaScript or turn it into WebAssembly or whatever kind of delivery format it needs to convert it into, that tool is a compiler, that tool is a transpiler, if we just think kind of broadly. And should somebody be thinking about designing a language and also building a tool like that that would allow people to communicate more effectively their ideas than they can even communicate in JavaScript? Yes, we already have a lot of other higher level languages that end up in JavaScript and WebAssembly. We've got Reason and you know all these other ones that, that you can write that, that some people claim are the much more expressive and much more understandable and readable uh, programming languages that we should all be learning. So I think we should have a thousand of those. We should have a lot of people researching what are those next best languages. I'm not married to the idea that JavaScript always and forever, it's the only language you should ever use. I think it actually is uniquely well-designed, which is a controversial statement because a lot of people think it's uniquely poorly designed. I think it's uniquely well-designed and I think it has stood the test of time because of that kind of accidental genius on Brennan's part. But that doesn't mean that it's the end-all be-all of programming language theory. I don't think that machine learning should be in the job of influencing how a compiler works because you want a compiler 
to be absolutely deterministic. And so I think the idea of thinking about and researching what kind of designed language would allow us to communicate better, I think you could take the models that are being developed for things like Tab9 or any of their other competitors or GPT-3 or whatever, and you could sort of start to reverse engineer a programming language from those models. And then once you had a good programming language that had been reinforced from that, you could design a deterministic compiler that would then take whatever that abstracted XYZ language is and turn it into something that could execute any, anywhere we needed it to. But I don't think what we should have is the, you know, you said, oh, I don't, I don't necessarily want it to replace when I'm, when I'm right there. Well, if it's going to replace, if it's going to make semantic replacements later without me seeing it, then all of a sudden my program's non-deterministic. Every time I compile it, I get a different outcome. That's no good. Nobody wants that. So what we want is we either want to see the replacement right away, or we want for that replacement to, so that we can correct it, or we want for that replacement to be deterministic so that we don't have to see it, but we can still trust it. Uh, the third mode of it, we not seeing it, and we also, it's not deterministic. I don't think that one would work that well. Does uh, that help? Yeah, although an, inter an alternative way to think about it perhaps is that it kind of brings up uh, developers to the level that is currently occupied by uh, product managers. And from the product manager's perspective, uh, the tool doesn't need to be doesn't need to be wholly deterministic. It just needs to be more de deterministic than programmers, <laughs> which are humans and consequently not deterministic. But but yeah, but going for a second to the complete opposite. So we were talking really high level now, and actually I wanted to ask. There was a low level question that I wanted to ask and kind of slipped my mind before. So right at the very beginning, I made this kind of joking statement about it uh, kind of eliminating the need for TypeScript, and you explained the difference between what this tool does or a tool like this does and what TypeScript does. But my question then is, does this particular tool ignore language-specific semantics? Is it the pure machine learning model that just, you know, because you happen to write mostly, let's say, JavaScript, then you've effectively trained it for JavaScript? Or is it a tool where my initial data set, because it sees that I'm creating a JavaScript project, perhaps it uses a data set that is more uh, specific to JavaScript? Hmm. I think it's, I think it can be both. I'm not sure that this is necessarily an either or, so I might've missed some of the nuance in your question, but you could envision a model a machine learning model. And again, remember machine learning models, non-deterministic. You put the exact same inputs in, you're going to get different outputs because the system is constantly evolving and learning and that sort of thing. And that's, as a side note, that's a little bit challenging for someone like me who's trying to actually create like demos because I'll be like coding along and it'll like make a really cool suggestion. I'm like, oh, I want to capture that on video so I can show that. And then it's sometimes difficult to replicate that exact scenario because it's not always deterministic. It doesn't always give exactly the same weighting to, to the outcomes. But that aside, you could envision having a machine learning model trained against JavaScript. You could also Im imagine a machine learning model trained against TypeScript. So that machine learning model would understand 
something about TypeScript that it doesn't understand about JavaScript. But the training against TypeScript as a language, in, from the way my mind is thinking about it at the moment, is not going to give it a whole lot more information about the actual code. What it's going to give is a ton of information about the TypeScript language itself that is the type language. So it would learn a ton of the semantics about the type annotation language. And that would be really useful in all of your writing of your type annotations. It's probably not going to impact much about the parts of the code that you're writing that are the actual JavaScript, because it wouldn't know any more about your JavaScript than the JavaScript model would. But the parts where you're writing the actual type language, all of those annotations and things, it could actually learn a ton from that. So that makes a whole lot of sense. But that is still separate from TypeScript itself, knowing something about the types that are allowed in an arithmetic operation, for example. It, you know, that those are on separate levels of cogency here. So we want for both of those to be able to coexist. We want for the intelligence that TypeScript knows, all of its actual analysis of the, all of the inferencing that it's done from all the types and things like that, that's far beyond any of the level of the semantics that this tool would have. That's all very useful stuff. But TypeScript really only knows that you're trying to access a property on an object. It doesn't know really why you're doing that or what you're going to do with that. That's what Tab 9 or Kadota could understand. So those tools should be able to work in tandem. They should be able to work in combination with each other to make the best set of suggestions for you. You might at that moment only want for it to, you know, token complete what properties are accessible on this type, on this object type. Or you might want it to say, I know you're access accessing this as an iterator, but I don't see you using the for of loop. And I would like to suggest that semantically, it seems like this would be cleaner if you did it with a for of loop instead of manually accessing the iterator. That's a semantic thing that is way more intelligent, if you will, than just the narrow type question. So at any given time, you may need one or both of those. But if I understood your question, you would actually want a, both of them. You would want a model trained on TypeScript, and you would also want a model trained on the semantics of your code, because at any given time, you need one or both of those kinds of suggestions to get your job done. So I'm kind of having, as a result of what you just said, I'm having two contrary thoughts about the relationship between tab nine and, and TypeScript. On the one hand, like you just explained, I see them as being very complementary. Maybe even, you know, you can leverage even to a greater extent the way that they complement each other. For example, when you provide, when tab nine provides suggestions, it can actually run TypeScript on the suggestions and not provide suggestions that turned out to be incorrect uh, TypeScript because the typing doesn't isn't proper within these suggestions. Yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't quite do that right now, but it already uses the TypeScript language server for its analysis of your JavaScript code. So it's not at all unfeasible that it would be able to do so, and that would that would be something that I think we would be striving for. Another thing that it could do is, for example, let's say you, you have object X, a variable X, and it knows that the object that's currently within, that the type of, of X 
has uh, two properties a, a and B, it can use this information to again influence what it suggests to you. So that it knows that it sh if you do X dot, it knows that it should, should suggest something based on A and maybe suggest some other things based on B, something like that. On the other hand, it seems to me that there is a significant overlap, even though the approach is different, even though the source of information and the method of operation and that one is deterministic by definition and the other one is not deterministic by definition. From, from my perspective as somebody who, who's using both these tools at the same time, there is an overlap in, in the results that I'm getting from them. And once there's a certain overlap, it does raise the question of maybe it does reduce the need or the value of one of these tools. I mean, if I'm using JavaScript instead of TypeScript, or, or put it differently, potentially I could say that maybe code nine can reduce the value that I would get from switching from JavaScript to TypeScript and given potentially disadvantages that I also get when I switch from JavaScript to TypeScript, something like code nine could enable me to stick with JavaScript instead of going to TypeScript. I think that it is true that there is overlap. I want to be careful about any implication because I wouldn't support it. I'm, I'm not sure that you are saying it, but I don't think that a developer should pick one tool or the other simply because the overlap is big enough that it's good enough. I think there are some things that TypeScript is going to be able to do better in its suggestions than Tab9 will ever be able to do, other than maybe Tab9 literally just being able to like ingest <laughs> the, the TypeScript stuff and just spit it right back out, right? Like TypeScript its understanding of the type system that you're using in your code will always be better because it will always be deterministic. There is, it, 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 there's very little gray area in the type system except for things like any or whatever. Like I guess you could do, you could imagine semantics doing a little bit more intelligent linting on some of those, those fuzzier types. But like the specific stuff, it's going to know very definitely that you either do or do not have access to this property based upon the type signature. It's going to know that. And it would be very difficult to imagine a machine learning model and even a set of rules that would ever get to such a layer of confidence that it could just show you the one suggestion and not show you nine, uh, you know, eight other ones. Tab nine has got to show you a bunch of different suggestions because at the end of the day, the way it works is still a, just a, a level of confidence. And even if we're like 99.9%, .9%, it can't just autocomplete based on that. It's got to present you some options and let you pick from what you think it, you know, what, what it thought you wanted, you got to pick which one you actually wanted. So, so TypeScript is superior in that respect. But there are things that tab, tab 9 will know about your code that I don't think TypeScript could ever know. No matter how good the the Microsoft team is at writing all of their static analysis of types, there are bigger level semantic questions that Tab9 and Kadota eventually could understand about what you're doing that would never make sense to come through a TypeScript suggestion or TypeScript compiler error or whatever. And so 
those are because the overlap exists but there is clearly some space within each in the venn diagram if we're mentally visualizing this there's some stuff that tab 9 and kadoda will always do better than typescript and some stuff that typescript will always do better then i don't see them as competing with each other in any way i see them as 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 a collaboration if you will now deduplication of suggestions that's certainly an interesting area that needs to be improved right so you don't want to see nine of the exact same thing because you got it from nine different places right so deduplication is important and ux is still important but but i just think if we understand the space of what these tools are designed to be able to do they each have some things that they will always be better at than the other tool i really like the fact that you are endorsing typescript (laughs) (laughs) of course you would draw me into that Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at javascriptjabber.com slash Raygun. So I, I, uh, at, at least with Go, which is what I've been using tab nine for. I don't, I don't know that I've used it in JavaScript as of yet, but the autocomplete in Vim, when I turn on the true, forgive the word true here, but the true Golang autocomplete, mm-hmm. then when I hit dot, I get exactly the real definition of the methods that are actually available on that object, which is very Correct. nice. Yep. Um, and that takes precedent over tab nine. And I'm not sure if that's because like I load tab nine first and I load my other autocomplete later or vice versa or whatever it happens to be. But at least for me, I it seems like they're not actually conflicting. And so I can get the type-based completions, which honestly I think are more useful. You know, if I was going to say like nine times out of 10, which one am I going to use? It's going to be the type-based completion, because that gives me exactly the right code, as opposed to confidently good code. But the tab nine works for other scenarios where that doesn't work. So again, I agree, it's not like an either or, although there may be some tooling conflicts, it's a both. So in my experience so far with the tool, what I see in the suggestions are and and the ordering is actually a, a bit complex, and so we don't we can try to dig into that a little bit as as to how the ordering happens. The ordering is going to be affected by some some nuances that each different code editor. There's no standard. 
thing for how plugins work in code editors. Regrettably, every code editor on the planet has its own entirely different way of allowing plugins to do it. And some allow more than others. And some you have to do jump through a bunch of hoops to do things. So the code nine, the Kadoda and Tab 9 plugins are like 15 separately written programs that have a, mach- a, a common machine learning model underneath them. But they're all wholly separate code because they have to be to, to customize for each editor, which means that some editors, you're going to have different behaviors. It may do the ordering differently because that editor may not allow reordering of things where another or- editor may allow reordering or whatever. So it's it's difficult to say definitively in your Vim scenario, this is what's happening because I don't I don't know that code base. I don't know what what it can and can't do. Why not? I know that. Why not? I know each. <laughs> uh, there's only so many things I can keep in this head of mine, um, so I can't definitively say why it may or may not show up in the list or be at the top of the list. But I would say that the the idea that you are getting a type based suggestion, I understand the attraction to that. But let me just share with you. I don't I don't use TypeScript in my code, so I'm not getting a type-based description, but I am in my dropdown. I use Sublime on Windows. So I have the Tab 9 plugin in Sublime on Windows. So it, when I write a set of JavaScript code, the suggestions that I have showing in my autocomplete include just the property that I think I'm trying to type, which if I were using TypeScript, it could have made that decision based upon the type information. Since I'm not, I think it's just making it based upon the most common token that I've accessed or whatever. But it gives me a token. But it also gives me several other suggestions right below it, which include a comma or a parentheses or a semicolon or some other binary operator. Because it's understanding not just that I want to do that property, but I want to do something with that property. And so those suggestions are often the ones that I pick because I, if, if it takes me arrowing down to, to get the one that includes the, per, you know, the parentheses and the semicolon or whatever, that saved me having to then think about adding the, semi, the parentheses and semicolon in the end. And that, that suggestion came from the semantics. It never would have come from the, the type-oriented suggestion. So I think having those in the same list and letting you decide, am I done with this line? In which case, I want to pick the most complete suggestion that's here, so I do the fewest keystrokes. Or do I want to do more with this thing, in which case I only want the token, in which case I probably do want the type-oriented suggestion rather than the semantic one. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I, I agree with that completely. I Saving keystrokes is not necessarily my concern, especially when it's like one or two keystrokes. But yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I would also say that oftentimes when a tool like that is able to suggest 10 consecutive lines for me, or or let's put it differently, when the number of consecutive lines that the tool can suggest exceed a certain amount, it's probably an indication that I want to refactor my code. Hmm. Eh. In my experience, it is only focused on the actual current line of my code. Although, as I said, I've seen demos in other languages where they maybe have two or three or four lines that they're suggesting. But I think from an autocomplete perspective, I want to see those things first 
verify as a human that that is legitimately what I wanted to do and that there wasn't some nuance here that I needed to do it a little bit differently. And then it would be really cool if the tool, after I popped in those four lines of code, it'd be really cool if the tool then kicked in with that replace suggester mode that I was talking about earlier in our call, where it came up and it highlighted those four lines of code and said, based on what you've got here, did you know that there's a utility that does that? Do you want to replace it, right? Like that would be really useful. But I, I still want to see the intermediate step. I don't want it to jump to assuming that what I'm doing is exactly the same with no nuance difference to how I've done it before. I, I want to see the intermediate step and participate in that decision making. That, that I think is the difference between augmentation of me as a developer and replacement of me as a developer. That's an example of that. I think I may not have explained myself sufficiently precisely. What I meant is if I write a line, it completes that line, and then it writes another line, and, and, and I start writing a second line, and then it individually completes that line. And it completes the line repeatedly and, and resulting in 10 consecutive lines, which essentially have more or less the same signature. Like it, it uh, kind of similar to actually your video example, AJ. It, beyond a certain number of repeated lines in my code, if my code has a lot of of lines that that vary, let's say by a specific letter or something, then at a certain point in time, I ask myself, why isn't this a loop, or something like that? That that that's what I meant. Yeah, and that would be an example again of the the semantics of the tool realize that you did the same thing multiple times, and it could then after that pop in with the suggestion, would you like to replace these 10 lines with a for loop, for example? That is something that I aspire to this tool being able to do at some point. It doesn't do that right now. It doesn't really, it, it'll just help you keep repeating that line because it sees that you've done it. And as I Jay said earlier, it'll just let you keep tab completing it. But it doesn't, it doesn't figure out that, oh, well, that should have been a loop or, you know, oh, that should have been in a function or it doesn't do any of that stuff yet. I hope that Someday this tool could be like, hey, why don't you extract it to a function named this because we think that there's a 64% chance that this word that we're giving you describes what this code is doing. That would be like super helpful because naming is always really hard. And if you could suggest a good name for me to start with, that would be really, you know, I, I would love the tool. Okay, I, I uh, meant to, to ask this to earlier, but how does a graphics processing unit give me textual suggestions? That seems so weird to me. Like, I, I guess it's like tokenizing it under the hood and it's not recognizing it as words. It's recognizing it as a mathematical pattern. And then it like remaps words after the fact or something. But it's just like the idea that a graphics processing unit is auto-suggesting text is like, that, that doesn't sound right. Should I mention the neurons in your brain? How are they <laughs> suggesting text? I mean, it's just yeah. uh, molecules and stuff, you know? Well, it's a good point that you bring up, AJ. So let me let me explain a little bit more of that, and I'll I'll actually give a a very direct and personal example here. The audio that you're hearing me speak through right now is actually real time being filtered by a graphics card on a computer. I have a a RTX twenty sixty graphics card, an NVIDIA graphics card, in a computer that is is sitting next to me. And they have written a program that uses the, because the, the newer generations of these video cards actually have specialized cores on them for machine learning. 
somewhere along the way, we went from graphics rendering being like a deterministic thing to graphics rendering being like, oh, AI can accelerate this. And they started putting specialized cores onto video cards that have specialized instruction sets for large machine learning type math. And so these video cards are actually like half now these NVIDIA calls it a tensor core. It's literally like a specialized processor that does nothing but do machine learning really, really damn fast. Okay. And so all the high end. How can, how can the GPU be AI and blockchain and still have room for <laughs> graphics plus audio encoding? <laughs> it's, it's all in do we one. We need man. CPUs so, anymore. So we just throw the CPU out. What does it do? I mean, it, it literally is getting to the point where more and more of our, our, computing tasks are running on the GPU and less are running on the CPU. It's kind of funny. But anyway, just, just to kind of finish this up. So, so NVIDIA has this thing called RTX Voice, which is a piece of software that allows you to pipe your microphone into their software. And in real time, they do background noise filtering. So if my kids walked in the door and started talking to you, you would not hear that on my microphone because in real time, it's using the tensor cores on my video card to filter out that stuff so that you don't even hear it. And then that audio gets piped into this, this call that we're on. And so what is happening with Kodota and Tab9 is they have a bunch of video cards like that that have those hyper-specialized machine learning cores on them. And those cloud servers don't do anything graphical. They're just using those hyper-specialized cores to run all these machine learning models much more efficiently than a normal general CPU can do. And, and if you were wondering why NVIDIA uh, is worth uh, $340 billion, well, now you know. Now you know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just try to be a little more environmentally conscious. Not wanting to generate all the carbon offsets for your GPU usage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, we're working a garden to kind of account for the carbon footprint of JavaScript Jabber and... I don't know if I want to take on any additional burden right now. Did you see that article that, that came out from MIT just the other day, like a, yesterday or something? No. An article that came out that was where somebody had gone and done the power efficiency of all these different programming languages and then ranked all the programming languages based upon their power efficiency. And it turns out JavaScript is near the top of all the dynamic languages it's significantly better than most of the other dynamic type languages in terms of its power efficiency. So well, that if you're looking to, compiled. if you're, if you are looking to be better for the environment, you should pick JavaScript instead of Python because Python was at the very bottom of the list. It was worse, oh, yeah. I think. And Ruby was way down there, but JavaScript was way up there near the top. I'd like to say that when you have the best engineers from Google, Apple, Microsoft, and the open source community competing who can write the fastest compiler, well, you tend to get results. You're, you're going to get good results after that. Yeah, that's true. What's crazy to me is that people think that Python is a good language for machine learning when it is absolutely one of the most terrible languages you could possibly conceive of for machine learning. And none of the machine learning is written in Python. It's all written in C. And then it's made accessible through Python so that you can manipulate it. But oh my gosh, like that's one of the tragedies. I, I love Python from the perspective of it's a it's a beautiful language. It's old, you know, it's its age is showing. It's not a modern language at all. It cannot be transformed into a modern language. It is stuck with the problems that it has of its legacy. 
Um, but it is it is a very beautiful language. But gosh, like I can't believe that it's having another spike of resurgence when it's just so bad for the things that we do these days. Well, look, it it often has to do with coexisting code bases. I mean, for example, people were using Fortran long after its heyday just because it had excellent math libraries that were written for it and compatible with it that were at that time simply not yet available for other programming languages. So it's kind of the same with Python. There's a lot of expertise that has been built around it with machine learning and a lot of existing libraries that work with it. And that's where where it's at. Yeah, I, I get it. It's just, ah, we could have so much better. I, I keep on waiting for either Rust or, I, I, I don't know, like maybe Julia. I, something's got to take its place because it's just so darn slow. Anyway. Yeah, we, we should wrap up because I was not paying attention to the time and we've been going at this forever. So let's move on to picks. Thank you so much, Kyle. This has been an amazing show. I mean, it's always, you know, you're, you're great to have as a guest. Everybody loves you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we go to picks, though, maybe you can, you know, give people a, a pointer to where they can go and find the stuff that we've been talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, That's good, good question. So if you go to Kadota, which is C-O-D-O-T-A, Dot com. You'll see a list of all the popular code editors out there and you just pick whichever one you use and click on it and then you can download the plugin and get going. And again, we mentioned that you can evaluate it in the local machine learning model. And if you really like it or if your company really likes it and you want to keep going, you can get pro licenses to offload it to the cloud and make it even more efficient. Uh, but yeah, just start at kadota.com and pick your editor and download the plugin. All right. And- and how do we, and how do, I assume that everybody knows where to find you specifically or personally, but uh, I still think it's worth a mention. Yeah, we should have mentioned that off the top. I am Getify, G-E-T-I-F-Y, pretty much everywhere online. So that's my Twitter, it's my GitHub, my Gmail address, anything. So any of those various places online that you want to find me, you can probably find as Getify and reach out and give me feedback and give me questions. If you try out the plugin and you love it, or you hate it, or anywhere in between, let me know. I'd love to love to hear your feedback and surface that so that I can help Kadota make this tool best in class for, for JavaScript and web developers. Cool beans. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. All right, well, let's go ahead and have Amy go first because she is ready and roaring to give us some picks. <laughs> yeah, in case I need to jump off here sooner rather than later. I feel bad because lately I've been picking more like infrastructure type picks and stuff. Still doing some JavaScript, but because I'm kind of doing two different things in my current role. So this is kind of cool to me as I was re- researching different Terraform tools. So it will look at your Terraform file which is, if people aren't familiar, it's a tool for provisioning infrastructure in like Azure, Google, Amazon. But it'll look at your Terraform file and it will predict the cost of what you're trying to provision. So I will drop a pick for that because I thought that was kind of cool. Well, Amy, we know that you're you're jumping up in the pay tier when you're getting paid <laughs> to solve these kind of problems. <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> 
no comment indeed. <laughs> All right. It's fun. Uh, I do it because it's fun. And I really oh, do. I know. I know. But I'm <laughs> just saying, like, when you get to the point where you're, that's the kind of problem you're looking at, you, I know you're up in the ladder there. <laughs> so, Dan, you want to go next? Sure. Why not? So we've been talking about tools to help you write cleaner, nicer code, automate your coding process. So I actually want to link to an excellent article that is the title of which is how to write unmaintainable code in order to, you know, for job security, to ensure job for life. They have some awesome suggestions. For example, we've, dis- we've been talking about how difficult it can be to pick appropriate variable names or names in general. Well, how about using baby names for variables? I think that's an awesome idea. Another idea is to take whatever you thought the variable name should be, throwing it into Google Translate, translating it into some random language, and then using that instead. A lot of excellent tips about how to make your code wholly unreadable and wholly unmaintainable in order to ensure that your company can never, ever let you go. And that would be my pick for today. Dan, I'm just worried that maybe some companies would let people go if they did that. Yeah, and then you try to debug whatever I left behind. I just rewrite it. But anyway, Kyle, you want to go next? My pick is if anybody has ever worked with the cookies API in the browser, document.cookies, which literally landed in the browser in October of 2000, so a long 20 years ago now. If you've ever worked with that and struggled or pulled your hair out with like how poorly designed this seems where you're like, fuzzing around with string characters and trying to pull your cookies out. There is a proposal for a modern asynchronous promise-based API for cookies, and it has landed in Chrome. They've implemented it and rolled it out. And there's a bit of concern from some of the other browsers. They're not really sure if they want to implement it, but I think it's a really good idea. So we should start playing around with that. And hopefully... I literally happen to be writing some code right now on a little project of mine that I'm having to manage cookies, and I really wish I had a better API for it. So I'm glad to see some progress finally after 20 years on that. Uh, I'm kind of amused that I've never thought I'd get a chance to correct you on anything browser-related, but it's document.cookie. Singular rather Sorry, than plural. Not document.cookies. Uh, it is document.cookie. Yeah, you write many cookies into document.cookie. That's that's an amazing API, by the way, where you add stuff into a string, but it doesn't, you know, you change the string, but it actually adds to the string. It's an amazing API. Really, <laughs> a really interesting API. I actually agree with you that document. Uh, that access to cookies should should have been asynchronous. Essentially, almost any JavaScript API. Should why? Be why would you? No, 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 no. You do not. It, we're talking about at max, like what a four kilobyte string. No, that does not need to be asynchronous. Absolutely okay. not. Okay. It me. does, AJ. It does, AJ. And let me tell you why. First of all, it needs to be asynchronous because the browser needs to be able to store things not always in memory so that Chrome is not taking up 600 gigabytes of my RAM and whatever. And the browser stores things like local storage and other things in lots of different places. And not all of them are synchronously available, or if they were, it would be really bad for performance. So if it like writes then something let the browser to a page file or whatever. The hood. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't bother me with that. 
Let, but the other reason the other reason why it needs to be that way is that you need asynchrony when you're going to do cross context communication and these multi-process browsers are all now running tabs and iframes and all these different processes you can't have synchronous apis that are coordinating across multi-process so you do need asynchronous apis for anything that can you can make a change in one context and it can be seen in another that needs to be an asynchronous api not a synchronous api and I, and I, just a comment on that aj be aware that for example the local storage api was at the time made synchronous and people were have been using it to store like two megabytes of of data so maybe cookies are in fact limited to 4 8k or whatever but uh, people have been using local storage for huge amounts of data and then running into all sorts of performance issues. Right? Yeah, and those performance and the, issues the people, are the people who designed, doing it wrong. The people who designed local storage have all unanimously come out and said, oh man, we definitely should not have made that synchronous. It should have been asynchronous. No, no, the people just shouldn't <laughs> use it the wrong way. And, and it, oh, anyway, it, 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 some of that asynchrony can completely go under the hood. Nobody needs to know about it. It doesn't, it, whatever. Oh, just, whatever. Do a, just do a wait and then but, you're golden. But if you tell me that they're going to implement it with iterators, that's what I'm going to go ape nuts. Again, <laughs> with iterators. Yeah, but you don't need to be aware that it's iterators. It just, if it's with iterators, then it just works with a spread operator. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm talking like the query, the query object where they implement it with iterators and there's no way to console.log it without like doing, oh, well, I don't talk about it. I don't talk about it. My blood. My I, blood I can't wait for us to have a future episode of this where we dig into AJ's problems with asynchrony in the browser no, API. No, no, we're not doing that ever. <laughs> we're not ever doing that. We're going to let that one just lie. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to do some picks, bring some positive energy back to the table here. All right. So first and foremost, what should be everyone's top pick is, of course, Three Wolf Moon. I referenced this the other day, but I didn't have the link for it. So now I've got the link for it. Three Wolf Moon, ladies and gentlemen. It is the ultimate in t-shirts. It's got not one, not two, but three wolves howling at the moon. This beats out Wolf Moon. It beats out two Wolf Moon. This is Three Wolf Moon. And the people in the comments are going to tell you all about it. If you need some comedic relief for today, Click on this link. Oh, dang it. I should have used an Amazon affiliate link. I'm going to fix that real quick, just in case you do decide to buy it. And you need to get your three wolf moon comment reading on because it is going to make your day better. This is one of like, I, I think this thing is like 10 or 15 years old. I mean, this thing is forever old, but the comments are hilarious and they've just aged so well. And there's a bunch of other things like this as well, but some of them are no longer politically correct. Like there's one about a, a pen or a pencil and there's one about a jug of milk but just there's these little hidden easter egg gems on amazon where there's all these great wonderful just comments that just make you laugh out of your your nose holes anyway i'm also going to pick watch exec which i mean like in node you 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 have nodemon but the, the problem and it doesn't watch exec is great because it's a single binary it's cross-platform and you can use it with any process. It doesn't have to be integrated into Node. So if you've already got something that watches files for changes and then runs a process when the, the set group of files change, then, you know, great. But watch exec is super intuitive, very easy to use. The options for like how to specify which extensions you want to listen to. It's got reasonable defaults, whatever. It's just a great tool. 
It's made my life better. And I've got a cheat sheet up at webinstall.dev slash watch exec. And then also I kind of wrapped someone's Go library in a way to make it publishable because a release hadn't been released in a couple of years. And, and uh, I, I may want to add some additional command line flags, but it's called .env. And so if you're not familiar with .env files, you, I mean, this, this is something that today you need to go look at .env files. It, never, ever commit .env files to your repository. Don't ever config, commit like a config.js. You can, you have this .env file, you put configuration and it's very simple. It's just key value pairs, like name equals value. And then you get access to it and process.env. I think that's what it is. Yeah. And this is just, it's a, it's a, this is part of the whole 12 factor app thing. But anyway, so this, the, the .env program is just a cross-platform way to, uh, and again, in Node, you already have a .env package. In Ruby, there's a .env package. But sometimes you come across a thing where you can have access to environment variables, but you don't have a good way to inject the .env into the environment before the thing runs. And so this .env package just helps you to do that so that you can run .env, give it the env file, or let it assume the default, which is the .env file, .env is spelled out .env in the program way, but in the file way, it's just the period env. Anyway, yeah, and, and then you give it the thing to run, and then it will run it with those environment variables. And I've got the cheat sheet up for that on webinstall.dev slash dotenv. And those are my picks for today. AJ out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.